Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. Today's guest is Dr. Alan Langdale. Dr. Langdale is a professor of art history at the University of Santa Cruz and specializes in the period of the Renaissance, the Italian Renaissance, taking place between the 15th and 16th century. He's also here to share his story. Uh, he's lived a rather unorthodox life, a very interesting life of travel for the last 30 years. He's been all, all around the world, living in different places, doing research, study, as well as working there. Um, another thing that he's talking about today is a little bit about what's going on in, in terms of the divisiveness of society and I know with the U.S. election coming out, um, there's a lot of anxiousness around that. So I figured this would be an appropriate episode to put out before that, um, as that, that is taking place very soon. And, and hearing that we really need to start examining our thoughts, our beliefs, and where we're getting our information from. And that's, again, something that Dr. Alan Langdale touches on. So once again, this is a very uh, a, a timely podcast. It's a little bit longer, but there's a lot of great information here. And uh, I truly enjoyed my conversation, and I know you will too. So once again, thank you for listening and enjoy. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. You're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. Okay, so you should have recorded the last thing we did for two hours. I know that was that was great. Yeah, we had a show. Yeah. So, Dr. Alan Langdale, thank you for joining us today. Um, I was hoping to speak to you about uh, your professorship and uh, what you focused on, and you as a as a world traveler and some of your stories, and also focus on what what's going on in the world today. Um, we were talking just just earlier um, about how this idea of technology and information is rather borderless, but we are living in a time that borders are extremely clear. And you were living in California before and you had to, you had to come back here. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah, well, I, um, I work quite regularly in California. Um, I, every year I teach for at least one quarter at the University of California in Santa Cruz. Um, but each one of my teaching assignments is um, I, need, I, I have to get a, a visa for each one. So every year I have to apply for a type of visa that's called a TN visa, which is a uh, NAFTA, it's sort of a NAFTA related visa. And so these visas expire at the end of the employment period, which for me, you know, is 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 uh, the quarter that I'm working in. So yeah, I had to uh, <laughs> really for the first time, I kind of had to, I had to hightail it out because I didn't want to overstay my visa because uh, I didn't want ICE coming after me. And <laughs> uh, so. And since I also want to apply for visas in the future, I didn't want a little red flag by right. my name. So, and it was a it was quite frustrating because I had bought a ticket to fly from from uh, uh, Santa Barbara to to Vancouver, 
and it was with Air Canada. And like five days before the flight, they canceled the flight. And so I was, I was, I had to like throw a bunch of stuff in my car and pedal to the metal, get, uh, get up here. So before your visa expired, before my visa expired. Yeah. I got, I, I just got here the day. Well, I got here on the 29th. I think it was expired on the 30th. So I, and I remember I came up to the border I mean, this is a border that usually has like a big lineup of people. This is you near the Peace Arch. Right. And um, <laughs> it was it was like a ghost town. Yeah. You know, you could have shot it. Well, you wouldn't want to have shot again. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That might have been a then little, you'd have another problem. Then I'd really have ice yeah. after me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and the Canadian border control. So it was dead. I just pulled right up and the guy says, where are you going? And. He said, you know, so I gave him my passport and he said, you know, you have to, uh, you have to quarantine for two weeks. And I go, yeah, I know I got, I got, I had organized that before, uh, uh, before I came up. So that was all, that was all good. So I did my two week quarantine and, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I've been here for a few months now. So now, now you're uh, perhaps your biggest passion is traveling and yeah. like you had mentioned you haven't really been here for you know living here i guess for what was it 20 30 years it's been a yeah, significant 30 years, 30 years. half but, my life yeah. so now you're <laughs> here you're back you're you're grounded so yeah. to say how is that for you how difficult is that for you well yeah a little bit of background there your listeners might want to know about this is that you know i usually teach one quarter at the university that I mentioned, but the rest of the year I work in tourism. So at least six months of the year, and sometimes seven months of the rest of the year, mostly in the spring and fall, I work for a series of companies. Mostly I work for a company called Smithsonian Journeys. Uh, though I do work for other companies like Zagram Expeditions, I've worked for National Geographic, you know, quite a few different uh, companies that hire it's educational travel so yes i'm i'm used to moving around a lot uh and um i you know i don't keep an apartment i don't keep a home because i would never be there <laughs> so it kind of doesn't make any sense so i just like rent little airbnbs along the way and most of the time i'm really living out of a suitcase um but i spend most of my time in italy um, I spend a fair bit of time in places like Egypt and India, um, Turkey, places like that. So, so yeah, so staying in one place, staying in one place for me is like extremely bizarre. Um, and it's, but it, at the same time, I was thinking the other day that it's kind of nice. Uh, as you know, my mother's 92 years old and through these circumstances that COVID has, you know, you know, put us all in. The good thing is, is I've been able to spend quality time with her. I've been able to spend quality time with my sister, some great old high school friends here in kind of the White Rock, South Surrey area. It's a, it, it's a bit of a silver lining, I would say. I mean, it's uh, financially, it's a little tough because I lost all of that income, but on on the flip side of it is that uh, I've been able to reconnect and and enjoy some of the friendships that I had a while ago. So, 
you're saying it's you have these mixed feelings you know there's obviously you're grounded as i mentioned but also you're able to to revisit some of these friendships and relationships so you're finding the good in this right and perhaps yeah. it's outweighing the bad yeah, I'm convincing myself. <laughs> right. And it, it, it is, it is, it, it, it yeah. is good. You know, I mean, um, life is a lot about tricking yourself. And uh, when you, when you, you, you know, I'm, I'm naturally fairly pessimistic. But, I, but I, I know what the leaven of pessimism is too, you know. I mean, it can get out of control. So how do you deal with this in life? And you really have to kind of think your way out of it. Um, you can all, you always have maybe you have help from friends and family, but you also have to think your 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 way out of your own problems too, and 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 try to 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 see uh, to see things in a better light. Uh, if you don't, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people who can relate to that. With you know, especially with what's going on now. I mean, we we were talking earlier about the political situation in the U.S. Well, I mean, this is very depressing. Mm add on top of that what you know COVID is doing and you can kind of see why people might get you know feel start feeling a little negative about things and a little bit uh, you know losing hope about the future things like that well and you do mention that and it's sort of this despair if you will or this this negativity it's it's very much like you say is it this thing is it that thing or is it eclectic right and yeah. covid it's it's hard for people because it's like really what is the evidence right and that's why you're getting all kinds of crazy things like conspiracy theories and like oh you know you're just yeah. wearing a mask yeah and it's <laughs> it's kind of scary because it's it's not really um it's not mean like there's a there's a real concept there's a real cognitive cognitive problem with covid because in a way and you you wouldn't think so but uh, let's say you're walking down the street and um somebody pulls out a knife and starts running at you as if they're gonna you know shove the knife into your heart you would defend yourself at all costs right well <laughs> that's happening at a microscopic level <laughs> you know that guy who's who looks perfectly nice, who isn't wearing a mask, may indeed be metaphorically oh. speaking, carrying the weapon that will kill you. Right. It may, you know, I mean, and so it's hard to, when you can't see something, you know, it's kind of this invisible enemy. And I think that it is difficult. People, people want the verification of being able to see, but with something as microscopic as, as that, I think there's, well, I mean, I guess in in the U.S. Well, I say in the U.S., but the U.S. tends to easily export all of its um, <laughs> paranoias and all of its uh, strange things nowadays. The internet becomes a conduit that that seems to permeate through the border as if the border doesn't exist. That you know, again, that we were talking about that before, but you know, the those ideas are are coming in very easily. So you've got anti-maskers and, you know, conspiracy theorists up here too. They, they're completely plugged into right. the QAnon phenomena down there. And, yeah. 
and and I'll, I'll be honest, like uh, any, you know, I think it's very good for one's mental health to not consume too much, you know, news, be it CNN, be it Fox, be it whatever, you know, limit your consumption. And what, what, but what is this QAnon thing? Yeah. I mean, I don't even know. I, there was, there was uh, some article about it in, in, um, I think it was in the province actually the other day, yesterday's province was reporting a little bit on it and, and how there was kind of Canadian, um, equivalents or followers up here too. I, I try to ignore it because it's just so ludicrous. You know? Right. Um, and you, you kind of have to, you kind of have to distance yourself from the insanity. I, I mean, you know, we're talking about travel. Well, I will tell you that I've never considered myself a very political person. And I am, to, I will be honest with you. I am quite happy to travel over in Europe and ride the trains and stay in cool little Airbnbs and completely ignore right. all of these political things. I'm quite happy to bury my head in the sand. <laughs> you know, I mean, I hate to admit it, but I think, you know, what are the, what's the, what's the other options? You can, you can whip yourself into a frenzy mm. uh, by, by, by trying to, you know, by, by following these things. And well, you're right. I, don't, I, I, I don't, I don't watch, I try not to watch CNN. I try not to watch, uh, uh, you know, I don't just watch those things. You know, I'll watch you know, the CBC Nightly News or something. So, I mean, Lisa Laflamme, I mean, who could, <laughs> what, who could have a problem with that? But so, it's, it's funny too, because like you say, when you get away from things, when you distance yourself, you sort of start to see that. And, and you mentioned this last time with your, with your traveling is that we live in, we live in these bubbles and we, we create very anxious bubbles, right? Cause we're so enthralled. Like we love the drama. I think part, part of the reason is, you know, yeah, I, I live in a, I live in a sub, sublime bubble, you know, again, right. when I'm traveling, you know, I mean, I, I visit all these wonderful places, um, you know, all these Italian cities, you know, Venice, I mean, the big cities, Venice, Rome, Florence all the time, Naples. I spend a lot of time in Sicily. So I'm, I mean, part of my world is I'm, I'm actually living in ancient Rome, you know, I'm, I'm living in the past and uh, I like it. <laughs> it's not a bad place to be. You're, you're not invested in it. And uh, as we've talked about, you know, travel is, the best education uh no matter what age you are it's really the best education in my opinion yes and it expands your world rather than contracting your world and i think that one of the big problems in you know for some people in society today is that there is that they allow their worlds to be contracted or focused or or the internet becomes their world right um you know when you really need to put the machines down and see how big and varied and kind of wonderful the world is still is amazingly, amazingly enough. And, and, and that's a really good point because uh, when we're in the internet or whatever, whatever we look, it's like cognitive behavioral theory, theory, right? What you think is what you do is what you feel. So people go on the internet 
and what they're thinking about their Google searching. And then that just becomes this constant feedback loop, again, mm. constricting their, their perspective. And you said it very well when we, when we spoke last time of it's very difficult to be a, a bigot, essentially, when you're going from country to country and experiencing culture yeah. to culture, yeah. right? Yeah, because what you find is that you know, 99.9% .9 of the people everywhere you go are really nice. And uh, when you're a traveler, you uh, <laughs> kind of like the, what is it, cat in a hat and roof, you're dependent on the kindness of strangers. You know? <laughs> and uh, so you're kind of vulnerable as a, as a, as a, as a tourist. You know, because you're in somebody else's house, you know, um, you know, you might not know the language very well or you don't know certain customs and, and you know, or how the bus system works or things like that. So you're, you really expose yourself to a certain degree of vulnerability and and to help yourself negotiate. You need the natives to be on your side. And so right. you learn how to kind of go, OK. You know, if I was at home, I would feel very, you know, you sort of feel omnipotent because you know how everything works. Well, go to, go to India. Yeah. <laughs> that scare you of whatever, <laughs> you know, ideas you have about, you know, your abilities to move in the world easily and, and have mm -hmm. control over it and so on. And um, there's, it. I think that there's a lot of, you know, we also travel talk about the, the difference between kind of traveling individually, yes. really free, open traveling, and then traveling in a very organized type of group, you know. They're both good, but when you travel alone as, you know, I still do a lot of traveling on my own, you really do open your up, yourself up to an entirely different can of worms. So, And, and the other thing about traveling alone versus traveling with a group is, and you know, there's bigger implications to this, of course, but when you're by yourself, you're not worrying about other people's agendas. Right. You're really only worried about your own agenda. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And also when you travel by yourself, you really don't travel by yourself, right? Yeah. You actually are more connected to the place and the people that you're traveling through because of this, dependence that I mentioned to you before you have to if you go on an organized tour you're in a you are in a kind of a little bit of a bubble yes and that bubble is the bus or the hotel or all the little you know, museums all the little nodes of security that you're quickly shuffled to and fro and so on but when you're moving yourself alone through those spaces those kinds of foreign spaces it's uh yeah, you 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 have you you have to be connected to that world. Uh, there's nobody guiding you. There's nobody taking care of you and and orchestrating all of your experience. And I, I another interesting piece is, uh, and we talked about this last time, is how there's a there's a big difference between going on a vacation and, yeah. like you say, traveling, right? Yeah, <laughs> but, but it almost seems like the traveling that you do is is very different. Like it's, it's almost like it's something much more. Like it's just a it's a deeper sort of level, I guess. You you know, say. Yeah, I mean, you know, I we in our previous discussion we 
I, I guess the background here is, and I think probably a lot of listeners might be able to relate to this, is I guess I was 21. I just finished my literature degree at Simon Fraser. I mean, the first thing I did was, was uh, you know, borrow a friend's backpack and buy a one-way ticket to Europe. And my first trip was eight months long. My second one was about 10 months. And I, the third one was about 10 months too. So between, I don't know, like 1980 and 1986, I spent probably three years backpacking around the world. So, but then in those days, a lot more people did that. That was not such a strange thing to do. Maybe the length of time was a little bit <laughs> pushing it, but a little bit over the top. <laughs> why, why do you think that is that people traveled more then than they do now? It was still a residue of the 60s. Uh, it was still a residue of the 60s. And there was a lot of, it was a lot cheaper. Right. For various reasons. First of all, well, for North Americans, to put it bluntly, the exchange rate. This was pre-Euro. Right. You could go to a country like Greece. Well, honestly, you could go to Italy or France. And you would, you know, hand over a hundred Canadian dollars or a hundred American dollars. So at that time, the dollars were pretty much at par. And you go to the bank and they would hand you a wad of banknotes that were so <laughs> big. You wouldn't believe it. You know, I mean, I, I remember gosh, in Italy, you were getting 1500 lira for a Canadian dollar and you know, it was only a two or three thousand lira to stay in a hotel or a youth hostel. So you're rich. So you, you, <laughs> you're living like a king. It was like a, this colonialist dream here. You were, <laughs> and it was. I loved. I loved it in France because in France the banknotes, the larger the, the denomination, <laughs> the actually the larger the banknote was. So that if you got a if you got a five hundred franc note. I mean, you'd have to fold it four times to put it in your wallet. It was like a sheet. Yeah. It was like, it was like a, an eight and a half by 11 paper. It was enormous. So, you know, it was, uh, that's a, major, a slight exaggeration there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, in Greece, you could easily, if you were willing to rough it, you could stay in a youth hostel or a small pension for under five dollars a night for sure i mean this was this was sort of often dormitory right stuff but not always sometimes you got your own room i mean they were a little rustic yes I can put it. <laughs> but and they still are according to your uh yes. yeah <laughs> yeah you can still find places like that um and believe me i i as you know i yeah. do do manage to find them but uh, but those the regret. I mean, you, you kind of just say to yourself, well, look, all I need to do is sleep for a few hours. What do I need to, you know? And, and so I would sleep outside a lot. Again, that you could do that in those days. You could sleep in parks in, you know, July and August. Schoolyards were fantastic places to, to free camp. Um, beaches, unfinished, unfinished buildings. So you'd walk into construction sites after hours and you know, climb up the concrete stairs and it would be just this open platform. And, you know, you know, I, there was one time I was in Greece and I was, I was on like the sixth floor of this. And all it was, was a concrete 
skeleton. But then I went up there and here was a view of the sea and I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm sleeping here for free. The next guy who sleeps here is going to have to pay $400 right, a night. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, you kind of, uh, yeah, it's kind of fun. <laughs> so, of, of course, when I, nowadays, you know, in, in my, in, in my sunset years. Right, right. Working for these companies like Smithsonian, uh, of course, you know, I, I stay in these <laughs> quite nice. Yeah, they put you up nicely. They're not putting yeah. you on a concrete slab. Yeah, but, the, but you know, two, let's see, uh, two, yeah, two years ago, I most recently, I guess, was two years ago, I was in India, and I was backpacking by myself in India. But the first time I went to India, which was kind of like in 1984, 85, I was there for four months backpacking around. <laughs> this last time, two weeks just about did me in. I mean, I was, I was <laughs> not quite 21 anymore. So. Well, and, and I, I want to go back to this sort of why people were traveling then versus why they're not so much now. And I love that idea of the, the residue of the 60s. As we know, that yeah. was a very sort of free thinking period. Um, yeah. It was a lot cheaper back then. Yeah. Any other reasons why people traveled more then than say now? Well, obviously not right now, but. Yeah, you know, I, to tell you the truth, I honestly don't know. And, I, and I'm almost afraid to find out. I think that, well, l- let me add one other thing. So yeah. another way in why it was cheap is because in Europe, you could hitchhike. Right. And a lot of people hitchhiked. If you were in, say, for example, especially in a place like Germany, and you would take a bus out to the, you know, the last stop on the edge of town near a, you know, Autobahn entrance, you'd have to get in line because there would be 30 people hitchhiking off that. <laughs> I mean, it, it was true. So yeah. like backpackers would line up and you would, you know, uh, it, it could, that could happen. Um, so a lot of people, hitchhiking was still a thing. Well, how many hitchhikers do you see nowadays in North America? Right. It's, it is simply not done. And I think that it's not done because there's this weird fear that the person who's going to pick you up is going like, to kill you. Yeah. Uh, and it's not done in Europe either. <laughs> I mean, I'm the, only guy, <laughs> I'm the only guy who still does it. So I remember this was, this was again, was a couple of years ago, and I was, I, can't, I think it was hitchhiking in Italy. This guy picks me up. He's, and, and he says, he says, he says, what are you doing? And I go, well, I'm hitching. He says, I, well, I know, but it's, nobody does that anymore. And I said, well, apparently it still works because you yeah. picked me up. <laughs> well, yeah, this is also there's for, no there's no competition now. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, go for it. Why would I not? And, and for listeners, this is also the, uh, the individual who hitchhiked through the Sahara desert. Well, yes. Although, uh, although I just hitchhiked through a section along the northern part of the Sahara for a couple of hundred miles. I don't, like, yeah. Not the whole thing from north to south or east to west, but yeah, that was uh, great. You know, I, I really what I wanted to do is I just wanted to sleep overnight in the middle of the desert in a sand dune. And let me tell you, that was, that was worth doing. It, the star, you could see the Milky Way from horizon to horizon. Great moonless night. Wow. You feel like you're in in the universe. 
if that makes any sense. A hundred percent. Yeah, and I mean, because of light pollution, people have fewer and fewer experiences of the night sky because light pollution kind of washes it out. And um, yeah, there's. Reminds me of this thing that was happening at the beginning of COVID when everything shut down. Right. There were these young people in New Delhi, in India. And they were saying, they were saying, you know, mom, mom, look, come here, look at this, look at this. And, what is that? What is that? And the mother would go, oh, those are the Himalayas. Whoa. They hadn't, and she said, I, and I haven't seen them since I was a child. But so for the first time, you know, the air cleared. For the first time in 30 years, the air cleared in New Delhi well enough for people to see the mountain caps of the, of the Himalayas. So anyway. Oh. Well, the, the other thing too, and it kind of ties into what you're saying, this is a word that's so you know, misused or overused, but awesome, like awe-inspiring. <laughs> and seeing those stars yeah. in their infinity, that must have been awesome, right? Yeah, you know the thing. Yeah, right. That I mean, I hate that word because every kind of got, it got turned into a, like a weird thing. Yeah, like you know, you got your hair cut. Somebody says that's awesome. that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, but that yeah. truly was. <laughs> it's um, like, where do you go? Like, what word do you use for? You know, that's that other thing. <laughs> yeah, but but really, I mean, I think that's the other piece though. Is when you look at the sky like that. And uh, I like to go hunting and I like to be, you know, out of this whole craziness, right? Of the, yeah. the, 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 you know, yeah. the hustle yeah. and bustle. And when you're out there in that, it's just, it's almost like a reset. So my point is, is when you right. saw the, the stars like this, it really kind of puts things in perspective. Yeah. Of how small yeah. we are in the grand scheme of things. And I think yeah. that that is yeah. a bit of a problem. Yes, well, it's this, this thing about kind of contracted thinking and expanded thinking, like that I've mentioned before. I mean, yeah. you, could, you could you could you could play with that idea in a lot of different ways today, and um, you know, the, how people's emotional worlds and intellectual worlds are so contracting um, into in, into this sort of tribal tribal way of being. And it's so bizarre that that is so because technologies like the internet <laughs> that are, you know, like worldwide, it is called the World Wide Web. And yet, and yet, even though that's so, the algorithms tribalize us. Right. You know, I sort of wrote in this thing recently, I said it was, I don't know, the, the line I used was, I, I wrote, it was only a matter of time before the algorithms created us in their own image. And I think that that is something that's, 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 that's something that's happening is the algorithms are creating people. They're creating new personalities in people. They're creating, yeah, the way yeah. people think, which is terrifying. Yeah. yeah. The way they think and the way they know. I mean, there's this, right. AT is a big, word but epistemological thing you know yeah. the, the study you know, of learning <laughs> uh you know the, the the way they the well 
I mean, for example, it is one of these things is this idea of, uh, of knowledge. How do you know things? Um, what are the criteria for knowledge? Well, apparently, you know, the criteria for knowledge is, is very different now. Um, it's sort of like every part of life is sort of like religious thought now. In other words, whatever you believe is true. Wow. You know what I mean? So, so there's no such, there, you know, there's not as, there's, I mean, I can sort of see under, I understand why there's been sort of been ta attacks on the idea of subjective, of objective truth. Objective truth, yeah. Objective truth, because, you know, there's been lots of times in the history of knowledge where something that was, you know, thought to be objective was in fact really subjective. And so, you know, now we live in a world that is filled with, with subjectivities. And so that means that, that if your subjectivity is the marker of, of knowledge, then you don't need verification. You don't need verification. So you can, you, if you believe in a conspiracy, it has the same truth value as, shall we say, something more tangible or, right. or verifiable in the old sense of verification, you know, to touch it, to, you know, experiment, you know, to see it, to feel it, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and that's such a good point because, you know, something objective, well, the earth is round, but then you have flat earthers who are saying, well, no, it's, it's flat. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, like, how did we get to this point? And like you're saying, there's the internet and there's this, this idea of mass sort of following. But, but also I think that intellectuals have been kind of elitist in their approach to things. Like, this is just the way you think. And in doing yeah. that, it's kind of ostracized people. And then they found people like them who have been ostracized and then they're just getting together and then they're just sharing their truth, you know, not capital T truth, but their truth. Yeah. And well, it's capital T to them. Well, yes. Right. No, no, it is capital T yeah. to them, but it's, it's their truth. And to them, the intellectuals are just sharing their truth, but nobody's having a real kind of conversation. Yeah. The intellectuals are saying, well, you're stupid. Right. Right. Well, this, you know, of course, this is related to this um, idea of that is, uh, how should I say? There's no, res there's, well, let's put it this way. There's no respect for expertise. So, you know, you've got um, a, a real estate developer <laughs> who claims to know more about, say, for example, COVID-19 <laughs> than- Who could that be? Done nothing but study epidemiology for their yes. entire career. And a real estate developer who has never even, doesn't even know what the word means, but he is absolutely certain he knows more about it than you know, <laughs> than the doctors. So and this is, you know, we, it, 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 there's a reason why Trump is president. It's because we are living increasingly in a Trumpian world. So he is not, the, and this is a little bit scary in a way, 
So is is he is he is he the illness or is he a symptom? And right. so I think he's a symptom. So that means that you know in in the U.S. as you mentioned, you know, election coming up. Just I mean, people, I spoke. You know, of course, people uh, Democrats will celebrate if 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 Trump loses, but that doesn't mean that there aren't any other. Trumps in a way, waiting to 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 reap to to learn from that experience, his win from his win and his popularity. So I fear for the future. No, no matter what happens uh, in five days or so, uh, that doesn't mean we're out of the woods. This could this could have been just the, the beginning of of something that it could get really bad. And I think, you know, speaking as a Canadian, I think Canadians have to be on their guard because it's always been a problem for Canada living next to that gargantuan dominant culture. It's, yeah. it's always hard for, it's always been hard for us. And, you know, manifest destiny, you know. Um, or, or, you know, how distinct can we be? What, what, what kind of individual you know, defining Canadianness becomes much more of an issue again. Well, and, and Pierre Trudeau said, Pierre Elliott Trudeau said, uh, you know, we're sleeping next to a, an elephant or something. Didn't he coin that phrase? Yeah, we were the mouse. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't have to roll over very far. To, and um, yeah, you know, I, this when you know some years ago there were a lot of there were a lot of i, I mean i don't know you probably don't remember but well you weren't alive so <laughs> in 1967 was canada's centennial yes and there was really a big uptick in canadian patriotism around mm. the centennial time right and there were the olympics in montreal eventually so there was you know it was a, it was a big deal and in those days there was and into the early 70s so we're you know, also talking true you know pierre trudeau years there was quite a bit of anti-Americanism because of the Vietnam War. And there was also anti-Americanism in Canada. A lot of, a lot of uh, draft dodgers, especially in Vancouver. I've been, I lived uh, in a place just behind Peter's Ice Cream on you know, 10th Avenue in Vancouver. And th across the street, there was this huge house. It was just filled with Americans, uh, you know, hippies. <laughs> You were talking after, yeah, yeah. They were anti-American too. You know, they were anti-war, and in those days, there was the well. Of course, the major media were there were were uh, movies in the movie theaters, uh, television, and radio. But there were all kinds of rules about Canadian content on the radio and these kinds of things. And and if you lived near the border, you could pick up a couple of uh, American stations and so on. But in a way, there was those media were, you, you know, there was still, you know, CBC, CTV, you still got a lot of Canadian content. And, but with the, inter the internet is not controlled in that way. Mm. And the internet delivers multimedia through computer, television, cell phone. So something like the radio, well, I mean, it doesn't really, and television as we knew it is also ceasing to exist. Right. So Canada has no cultural protections anymore. 
um, the only cultural protection they have, which is the like the worst one, is is you know this I, you know the tariffs on on published books and things. So that means you know you want to read a novel, you know Canadians have to sh have to shell out big bucks for a, a, a novel published in the U.S. Well, that's the least of anybody's. Oh, that's why it's so much more expensive for books in Canada. Yeah, yeah you know, but it's the, but the real problem is is the internet because it's right. a free. It's still the wild west. Legislators have not. I mean, they're just now trying to to rein in these these companies that became so enormous so fast, and legislators and governments completely flat-footed in terms of being able to deal with tax issues of taxation, you know, cultural hegemony, you know, all these, right. you know, all these things. And even as recently as a few months ago, you know, you've got, you know, somebody like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg going, you know, have you, you know, going to Congress and being, and, and, you know, the con Congress people having, they really don't know what he does. Yeah. Know? And he just sort of has to, you know, try to be polite, but they still don't get it. And people are, aren't getting, aren't getting how, well, I think now people do know how powerful these companies are. I mean, look how powerful Amazon is. Look how powerful Google and Apple are. They have, they, they're in terms of money and power, they're bigger than lots of nation states. What? So, so they're big. Yeah. I was talking with the uh an economist about this and uh yeah. I was like Amazon has all this money like they could buy like they they could buy nations in throughout the world. And he's like, "Well, yeah, but that's not what they want to do." But then you think <laughs> you know, about yeah. Why, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But then but then we look at with covid and all that stuff and you know i'm not a conspiracy theorist but canada and the united states they're 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 getting a deficit right there's i can't the word's slipping my mind right now but because of all the money they've had to shell out to keep people afloat they're gonna they're gonna need somebody to bail them out right and i wonder if you know if amazon does that or whoever does that if then yeah. that would be some weird kind of lobbyism right well, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I don't understand economics at all. Right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, the story I always tell people is I, you know, I remember I was, this was, a, I guess, around 1990, and I was sitting on the steps in front of my place, and I was reading the newspaper. And at the time, I was a graduate student, and I had about $1,200 in the bank. But I had $1,200 in the bank. And I was reading, I was, you know, uh, Donald Trump had just gone bankrupt. And uh, I was reading this article about how he was uh, in debt. He had no money and he was in debt, you know, $19 million. And I read that and I went, well, that means I'm $1,900,000,000 richer than Donald Trump. But somehow, no. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. On paper. <laughs> yeah like <laughs> and, and you know it was true but it wasn't true you yeah know? 
Well, he's still flying around in jets and all that stuff, right? Yeah. And here you yeah. are just sitting on the yeah. steps. And you're like, I don't feel richer than him. That's right. I was, you know, renting a room in the house before I had a graduate student. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I couldn't quite see how. <laughs> I, I, I like what you said about this Trumpian world. Are you okay if we go back to that real quick? Yeah. yeah. So. Like Trumpopolis. Tr- yeah. Well. In Trumpistan. I, I sort of think of it as the country of Trumpistan. Well, hey, who, who knows what's next? But yeah. like you said, he's one person, but millions of people have voted for him. You know what I mean? Like, he's not just one person. There's millions of people that yeah. voted for this guy. And there's going to yeah. be millions of people that will vote for him again, whether or not he wins. Yeah. And in Canada, I really do think, you know, we pride, it sounds like we pride ourselves on being this egalitarian society, but when you look at the anti-maskers and stuff like that, it really starts to, I don't know, it, it's almost like it's yeah. pulling on that same narrative of well, tr- yeah. a Trumpian kind of rhetoric. It's, yes. So the thing is to, you know, for, I mean, I'm just kind of throwing some ideas here, but one of the things that worries me is that the 21st century is starting out quite similar to the 20th century. Right. And that's bad because you had a situation where um, various nation states, you know, particularly in, in Europe, were dissatisfied with, with government, you know, with dissatisfied with their situations, of course, primarily Germany and, you know, so on and so forth. So, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and all of that. And this is, we're, we're kind of at that, it's, it, it isn't, of course, exactly the same, but what is the same as this is when you start losing faith in governments, your government to be able to solve basic so you know problems in your country, then there is this human impulse, and none of this is new. None of this is new. Right. Is to is to look to a kind of strong man, right? A charismatic strong man who is extremely you know, who just yeah. exudes confidence and who tells you that they're going to fix the problem. And the first person really to do that in the 20th century was Mussolini. And of course, you Hitler. know, Adolf Hitler just learned everything from Mussolini and, and took that ball and kind of perfected it and ran with it. So you, and there's still a lot of countries, of course, who, who do have leaders that are these strong, masculine, um, and they, they don't hold back. They don't hold back their language. They never apologize for anything. They're, they're you know, they're, uh, you know, they just, they just run roughshod over everyone. And there's then you, and there's a certain number of people in the society who respect that. And they, they want that. They want the strong ruler. They think a strong ruler makes a strong country. Um, and of course, the other thing that these people do, these strong men always find a scapegoat in society. Right. And very often it's immigrants or, you know, ethnic minorities. I mean, I don't need to spell this out for right. you, right? I mean, it's, it's a tried and true, it's a tried and true uh, method of influencing people. I mean, this is what populism is. This is what populism is. It's, it, and it does tend to uh, address itself to 
the kind of lowest, meanest parts of of human uh, of, of of the human psyche, right? You know, distrust of others, wanting to blame others, wanting to find a scapegoat, thinking that you know, if you exterminate Jews, you'll have this perfect race. Right. You know, again, it, it's it's something that it, it's something that bizarrely characterizes the 20th century in many ways. Well, right. I mean, there was there was eugenics, which was very much seen as a science back in the 20th century. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, too, is that when Hitler came to power and I did a course in my undergrad on the Holocaust and how people started out and they're like, yeah, he's going to pull us out of this. But when he started talking about his anti-Semitic values, people were like, that's kind of weird. But then he kept going into it and they were, they appealed to it because it was something in what they're saying. And before you knew it, people were turning on their neighbors. Yeah. And I guess there's something mm -hmm. similar. That yeah. Yeah. I, I think that probably what a lot of people, you know, I, I, you know, I, I hate to, I, to make a prediction, <laughs> You know, because here it is. What's the day today? Is it like the October thirtieth or something? And and um, so you don't want to predict something four days from now. No. And then you're like you're totally wrong. But I'm trying. What I'm trying to do is is right now is believe in the American voter. Right. <laughs> this is not easy to do. <laughs> but I don't think it's impossible that the Republicans might be more or less wiped out in this next election. I mean, maybe not. God knows. Maybe maybe Trump's going to win again. But um, I hope that, I, I, I hope that, I hope that the, I hope that the circumstance is, is that the, the win is so decisive that the Republican Party will realize that in backing Trump, they have ruined their own party. Right. And if, now, if that doesn't happen, well, I think we should, we could be we we should, we should be concerned about the future. But well, and there's actually kind of something that we've been touching on inexplicitly, and that's the psyche of today. This, I guess, like you know, the yeah. zeitgeist or whatever. Yeah, the zeitgeist. Yeah. And uh, what's that? The Germans, the Germans have all kinds of great words, you know that that we should be using because they have no real equivalent in, in English, like schadenfreude. Yeah. You know, or, or Pleasure or in that. someone's pain. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and they seem to be kind of like, like things that are around us, but we don't, we can't deal with them unless we have a word for them. And, in, but other languages do have a word for them. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I was just talking, I was going to, I had a walk with a friend of mine this morning who, as you know, German background. We were talking about German, talking about those kinds of languages. Well, but yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted. Well, no, no, no that, 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 that's all right. But there's something in yes, again, the psyche of today, the zeitgeist of today, where, like you're saying, this strong man populist is appealing not to a hundred people, but to millions. Well, yeah. But again, then, that's not just this time. This has been going on for now, you know, a century. It, it's right. never gone away. Like none of this is, like there's, there's some stuff that's new, 
but there's a lot of stuff that's not new. And it, it, if you study history, and you know, we you know, talk about this idea of, you know, when you're an art historian, it's true you study, you study art, but you also study history, right? And you have to kind of know both of those things to kind of put them put them together because they often are hand in glove. You know, the work of art is 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 not transcendent of the culture in which it was produced and consumed. It was very intimately connected to it. Um, anyway, but yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> so. And I agree with what you're saying. Is yes, in the twenties, the thirties, the forties, there this happened. And then there was in the 60s, well, you know, 50s, 60s onwards, there was sort of the Cold War and things kind of changed in, 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 in how that was happening. But there's a resurgence in this, this yeah. populism, right? Now, yeah. Yeah. which kind of, I want to go into the art history piece. And why art is such an interesting lens to look at history. And that's because, yeah. well, why is art such a good way of understanding history versus just reading, you know, primary documents or whatever? I, one of the, I mean, I can know, one of the ways I can, guys, I could answer that question is by, you know, kind of talking about my own yeah. personal experience when I was younger. I, I was, I was, um, I was an English major, actually, so I got my bachelor's degree in English, but, but I had taken some history classes, and I, I, I was interested in history. But especially in those days, when you studied history, you really studied the history of war. It was all about war and battles and victorious generals and politicians and, you know, one culture lording it over another and, you know, all this kind of... And, and there was still, in Canada, there was still a residue of, of, of British you know, raw, raw, stiff upper lip, British colonialism, right. you know, we're part of the empire sort of thing. I, 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 you know, that doesn't survive. It's kind of the pendulum has swung in the other direction yes. now. But, um, but I, th I, th I sort of thought, well, this is kind of depressing. I mean, if you, you look at, at human history through the lens of battles and war, it's but destruction. It's, um, yeah. And, and so, but with art history, you were really looking at, um, you were looking at it at objects that were made by creative people, people with, you know, interesting executive skills to make things, sculptures, paintings, or designers, you know, works of architecture. And they created these things that have been, that have been, that, that have been designated as things that should survive mm. because they're of their exceptionality. And so these things that survive the centuries and even millennia, I mean, you know, when I teach my uh, survey of European art and architecture, I start with the Chauvet Cave in France, 35,000 BC. And they're and they're absolutely remarkable. They're they're beautiful. I mean, they're amazing things. And you kind of you kind of think, well, who made these? Why were these made? Right. And you're um, and, and in some ways, you, know, you kind of imagine that this person 
I mean, I know it sounds like a New Yorker cartoon, but, um, you know, this person, this sort of person from 35,000 BC saying, no way, wait till they find this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. they're going to be really confused. This guy is like Michelangelo. Man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, it's like the cartoon where, you know, the, 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 the slaves are looking back and looking at the pyramids and saying, you know, they're never going to figure out how we did this. Right. Uh, and I, I think that what I like about art is it has a real universality to it. You can appreciate artistic productions, no matter what culture they come from, no matter what time they come from. I really like this, this sort of openness of it. It's just like I was talking to a friend the other day about music and saying that, um, because I have some friends who are musicians, a musician can go anywhere in the world and they right. have a pile of friends, you know? Because music is an international language. You find other musicians, you're in. You know, they, it's, it's such a, and, and, and I like to think of the world as moving towards that type of thing. I like to be able to, at least in some way, believe that the world, that there really are un, kind of these universal principles, aesthetic principles. Um, there are things that, unite people rather than divide people. Right. And I'll tell you, in as someone who tries to unite people through understanding and appreciating these works of art and architecture, I really feel like I'm swimming against the tide because um, because of course one of one of one of the symptoms of you know Trumpistan or you know the, the, this sort of historical moment is in fact the opposite is that everything has become more and more divisive yes. rather than uniting. So at the very stage that we need unity the most, we're actually finding divisiveness at a very high level. I do think that throughout history, um, for example, we look at the Roman Empire and we're like, whoa, that was so cool. But those were very chaotic times. Well, different times in Roman's history, yes. I mean, yeah, you know, more chaotic than others, of course. They were always fighting. You know, they were perpetually at war. Yeah, they were a conquering nation. Yeah, exactly. That's how they stayed alive, of course. Um, but uh, so the period that you focus on in your studies is the Renaissance. The Italian Renaissance. The Italian right. Renaissance. Yeah. And, and this was a period that was known for its humanist thinkers yeah. and it, it literally translates as the rebirth and it was kind of like a rebirth of civilization and they wanted to get back to this kind of glory, glorious period, I guess you could say. I'm no professional, so please correct yeah. me. And this is coming out of the middle ages, sort of the dark ages. So this is like the early modern period. Yes. Is that correct? Sometimes today, today in universities, often the Italian rena Renaissance is called early modern. Yeah which is a bit spurious, but anyway, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. 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 So, they certainly didn't call themselves early modernists. Of course. The co-opting of the, but they did use the word Renascimento, which in Italian means, well, the French equivalent is Renaissance, and we borrow the French word Renaissance, which does mean rebirth. So they, the, the, the people of the Renaissance in Italy, they saw what they were doing more as a rebirth than the beginning of some new thing. Right. 
you know, they, they didn't have, they didn't, no one ever used the word modernity or modern. Of course, yeah. yeah so, um, but yeah, it was a very interesting moment. And it, they, there was an attempt to, to, to go back to the, uh, especially the, the great literary and philosophical past of ancient uh, Greece and Rome. Right. And this was spurred by the fact that a lot of books were coming into Italy in the late 14th and, and through the 15th and into the 16th century. And the reason for this is because in the Eastern Mediterranean, the Byzantine Empire, which was a continuation of the Roman Empire, many of the monasteries and, and everything, they had ancient books. And, but, they, but as Islam expanded right. and as Islam took over Byzantine lands, many people who had the ability would flee and sometimes they would bring books with them. So Italy was, was experiencing, Italian intellectuals were experiencing a flood of new books. Oh. Yeah. Um, that, 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 and so this enabled them, this spurred this interest in the classical past because now they had the material to understand it more. So this is around when uh, Istanbul or Constantinople sort of falls. Yeah. I mean, Constantinople falls in 1453. Yeah. And, and that's the end of the Roman Empire, right? The end of the Byzantine Empire, uh, essentially. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, it's a weird part of our education is that, I mean, how, how many of you, when you studied history in class, you, you kind of, you, this was your history, you kind of got, okay, um, there was the Egyptians, then there were the ancient Greeks, then there were the ancient Romans. And then it was things like Dark Ages. Then what happened? Oh, Vikings and stuff. So, and then if you were paying attention, it was kind of like, like what happened? We, like, what happened to that thousand years? And and we never were taught about the Byzantines very much. And right. what happened? Were the Byzantines. I mean, the, the Roman Empire, the Byzantines, they did not call themselves Byzantines. They called themselves Romai. They called themselves Romans. They saw themselves, and the Byzantine Emperor saw themselves as the continuation of the Roman Empire except with the capital of Constantinople rather than the capital of Rome. Right. So the Roman Empire really does survive for, you know, almost 1800 years, uh, but just in two different places. But yes, in, by 1453, that empire is eradicated. It is, it is gone. And uh, that is replaced by the Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Turks. So, so, the intellectuals of the now eradicated Ottoman or uh, excuse me Byzantine Empire, they come to Italy. They bring these books, and this is sort of is this shortly after the end of the bubonic plague? Uh, well, no. The, the, well, I mean, shortly. It depends. It depends on what you mean by shortly. But <laughs> that was in the mid 14th century. That was the okay. first outbreak of the plague. Was the mid 14th century. But there were there were many subsequent outbreaks of the plague. The, the plague continued to affect European life. Right. I'll give you a good example in uh, in 1560, for example, 1563, I think. There was an outbreak of the plague in Venice that killed almost half the population of the city, which was like 60,000 people. Whoa. So the plague continued to 
to ravage uh, or certainly threaten cities of the cities of Europe, especially the Mediterranean port cities, of course, for obvious reasons. Yeah. So uh, the, the rafts would come on the ships and the fleas on the rafts would, you know. Yeah, because Italy was hit particularly hard. And I guess where I'm going with this is that um, when the populations were so deeply affected by these deaths, there was a sudden like explosion in population. Yes, and of course, you know, the people who survived found themselves to be quite wealthy. Right. Because, you know, their father, you know, their father had, if you were a first son and your father died, your uncles died, you know, your grandfather died. Well, you were left everything. Right. So you were, you were left bereft of, of members of loved members of your family. But you were you were also inherited, you know, quite a bit of wealth. So you were much better off personally, at least financially, you were better off. But your family had been decimated by, by this. So there so there were ramifications of capital, right? And this also, <coughs> excuse me, yeah, this has a lot. You know, the <coughs> the flight of capital from the Byzantine world is another element of this whole story. And, and um, you know, another reason why the Renaissance is called early modern in ways because you have the sort of proto-capitalist situation. It's the period of time when modern banking is, you know, comes you know, the Medici. Yeah. The Medici were bankers. Yeah. <laughs> and interestingly, in you know, in the Middle Ages, it was illegal for Christians to borrow to to lend money. So, so only Jews lent, lent right. money, Jewish money lenders. And this, by the way, was also the, one of the great sources of anti-Semitism in right. medieval. The merchant of Venice. Yeah. So, you know, you've got situations where you have a small town and the economy's growing, you know, things are okay. And so you have Christian merchants borrowing money from Jewish money lenders. Well, and then the economy tanks, because one of the one of the, one of the things we know about capitalism is that it creates booms and busts. Right. So the economy goes south, it busts. What do you do? Well, you blame the Jews. You say, Well, why why have our crops failed? Why are our sheep dying? The Jews. So you blame them, get rid of them, and you also are forgiven your debt because you've killed or right. yeah. exiled the person you owe the money to. So anti-Semitism was an extremely handy populist thing to use to wedge, you know, be, because of this financial aspect to it. So there is a, there is a financial element to anti-Semitism in Europe uh, starting in the Middle Ages. But now what happens eventually is the papacy, so then the reason, why is the reason for this? Well, this is because in Catholicism, the Catholic Church had this, had this idea that usury, that is to say, lending money at interest was a sin, was one, it was a sin. So if you were Catholic, you weren't allowed, you could lend, you could lend money, but you would, you weren't able to charge interest on it, which, <laughs> you know, yeah, dampened people's enthusiasm. <laughs> yes. Um, but then what happens in the 15th century is that. Uh, 
well, actually in the 14th century, is the, is the papacy loosens its definition of usury. And it, and it starts to approach more our modern concept of usury. That, that is to say, an exorbitant amount of interest. Okay? Right. Now, of course, and, and if you think that, that these things only belong to the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, just think about what happened just a few years ago. Right. With the ballooning interest things, interest rates and money lending and money borrowing, mortgages, all these mortgage problems, you know, I mean, everybody knows this by now, right? Um, so what happened was is that money lending by Christians was now okay. Yeah. And so this is when you get the Because there's an incentive. You can charge the interest, yeah. right? And one, yeah. and one of the reasons was is that, is that the church itself wanted money. Yes. Needed. Yeah. And this happens to more or less coincide eventually with, um, well, with the discovery of the new world. <clears throat> and then there, there became all kinds of other uh, investment possibilities to exploit the new world's resources and people and so on. So if you if you if you read about the rise of the of the West from the Renaissance on, it's you, you mean, you know, of course I look at that story through these objects of art, but I think it would be pretty hard to argue. I mean, most people think of the Italian Renaissance. If I say the word Italian Renaissance, 99% of the people are going to go Michelangelo. Right. Leonardo da Vinci, Donatello, you know, Ghiberti, you know, yeah. but really it's, a, but, but really they are the result of an economic revolution. And oh. because, because, you know, if you want somebody like Michelangelo to make, you, the, pay him. To make, you have to pay him. Yeah. It has to be, being an artist has to be a job that a lot of people want to get into. Right. they're going to make a good living because there's money to pay for works of art. And of course, this is why the Medici were so crucial. The, the Medici weren't the only Florentine banking family. Uh, there were the Rucciolai, the Strozzi, you know, the Pazzi. These were all banking families. But the Medici were the most powerful. And they were the most powerful. Yeah. 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 And, and, and there was all like people almost think that they're like the original mafiosos. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Netflix has a series <laughs> called the Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't watched that, so. Yeah. I never yeah. thought that's a good place to get your, you know, your oh, well, historical anecdotes, but. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little risky, but what the heck. It's still kind of entertaining. Um, but yeah, one, anyway, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, the, the one thing that I really liked about the Renaissance and the rebirth is this sort of, this also seems to be the rise of sort of the appeal to science or, or using the scientific method, right? And sort of questioning things. Yeah. Yes. Now that skepticism. Right. That's a, you know, of course it's, uh, but again, the origins of that lie in the ancient world, lie in Aristotle, and particularly in the Aristotle. Um, oh, so that's where that came from. This, this. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, but one of one of the books that 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 ends. You know, there's of course many books that end up being available, and one of them is is, is uh, Aristotle's uh, Natural History, and 
And it's based on, I mean, you know, he didn't get everything right, but he, he kind of based it on, he did dissections. He, he, right. he looked at the natural world. Uh, there's a great book, it's called, uh, I think it's called Aristotle's Lagoon. And it's about those years of his um, preparing the, his natural history. And so that, that's, that, yes, the scientific method was, 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 was something that the Greeks, ancient Greeks and, and Romans said. I don't know if any of you know this, uh, gosh, this book called The Swerve. Do you know this book? No. Okay, yeah. Well, it's, it's a book that came out, um, um, gosh, a couple of years ago. I'm just trying to find the, the, the um, um, I think it was published in 19, uh, or sorry, 2011, 2012. It's by um, Stephen uh, Greenblatt. And it, it's, it circles around a, um, a, a, a book by Lucretius, the Roman poet Lucretius, and De Rerum Naturae, on the nature of things. And um, this book is, you know, the subtitle of this book is How the World Became Modern. Oh, and it, right. it really addresses, you know, this, this this thing that you were just talking about is, is you know, if we're trying to find the sources of modernity and, you know, scientific method is definitely one of those things. And, um, and one of the things that I also find a little bit fascinating is that, you know, you kind of ask yourself, how and why did the West, the European West, turn in this kind of direction. Mm. And one of the reasons for that was that the West was facing an existential threat, and that was the Ottoman Empire. Right. And the Ottomans, you got to remember that the Ottomans controlled Hungary, they controlled Greece, they controlled the Balkans, what is, you know, what used to be Yugoslavia. They controlled... They were they were really at the footstep of Europe, and they besieged Vienna twice. And had Suleiman the Magnificent, the Sultan at the time, not died on the campaign, they may have conquered Vienna. And if they conquered Vienna, you know the the the, the, the Ottoman Sultans made absolutely no, they did not hide their ambitions at all. Right. They wanted to conquer Rome. They wanted to conquer Europe. And so this is why, say, for example, you know, a, a very decisive date in this whole story is 1571. And in 1571, there is a, a huge sea battle called the Battle of Lepanto. And the Battle of Lepanto takes place on the west coast of Greece. So very much at the entrance to the Adriatic Sea. Right. Which, of course, leads yeah. directly to Venice. Well, and so the Europeans finally kind of got themselves together and and um, uh, and and defeated the Ottomans. But but the arms the arms race <clears throat> the fifteenth century and the, and the 16th century are in in some ways very modern because um, when if you use the word arms race, we think of the Cold War, right? Of course, yeah. <clears throat> well, there was a there was a big cold, there was a big arms race at the, at the late 15th century and through the 16th century as well. And it all had to do with the invention of the cannon. 
and oh, perfecting right. cannon technology and gunpowder technologies, artillery and so on. So they didn't overheat and yeah. increasing the range of the cannons, yeah. increasing the accuracy of cannons. And you know, and because and 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 so one of the one of the one of the things that is also happens in this time is is a, a pretty how should I put it? Uh, there's new branches of mathematics, like ballistics, mm. you know. Right. And and when you start a deal, if you're trying to do um, geometry, analytic geometry, and you're dealing with things like arcs and speed and velocity, you're really looking at mathematics that's done at a, at a pretty high level. And so, and the, and the West embraced this. They, they, they were producing weapons that were, that ended up making sure that the Europe would actually control the world. Right. I mean, the Europeans established military were weapon kind of a supremacy in weaponry in the 15th century and they've never looked back much to the chagrin of the islamic world because since the 15th century the islamic you know mm. the islamic world was in many ways you know as you talk about well advanced dark, yeah they were far more advanced yeah. Uh, to us, the Dark Ages, that was like the Golden Age, right? They were so ahead in, in medicine. Yeah. Yes. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Everything. everything, everything. Yeah. And the Europeans in, in the, the Renaissance, why is the Renaissance so important as a kind of moment in, in Western, you know, when, in we Westerns' ideas about ourselves? It's because it's the, it's the century, 15th century. The 15th century is the century where the tide was turned. Right. Started to turn. And then in the 16th century is when it did turn. And it turned, it was a dramatic turn. It was a huge turn. And and all the made all the more dramatic when you think of the fall of Constantinople in 1453, for people in the Christian West, this threat is real. Possible to believe that Europe yeah. would and yet a hundred years later, it was, you know, things had really changed because of, of the, this, this technology of, of arms and, and the Ottoman Empire started to die also in the late 16th century. It still took another, it still took another, you know, 300 years for it to disappear, but it ultimately suffered the same fate as the Byzantines. And that is pretty crazy because, I mean, you know, not to be poetic or anything, but nothing lasts forever, right? No, lasts and forever. and I'm tying that into this. I mean, there was the Cold War, which sounds very similar yeah. to what was going on here. Yep. But now there's like a, a kind of like a new war, right? The Cold War was very much about communism and capitalism. And this was about religion, you know, uh, uh, yeah. Islam and Christianity. And now there's, it's like there's a new duality taking place right between well, the left and the right and in true yeah although if you're talking about wider you know global things it's a kind of an interesting moment because you're seeing the decline of the u.s exactly the rise, the rise of china basically exactly and um you know the chinese are producing weapons and i mean the russians are still you can't you know i i i if if I would be, wonder how many of your listeners 
who are of a certain age, you know, at least my age. But I remember in, I, I remember 1989. And again, here I am on, on my front porch sitting on the steps reading a newspaper. <laughs> and this was, you know, I, and what was I reading? Well, I was reading about the Berlin Wall coming down. And, you know, I had been in Berlin in the early 80s, 1981. I went to Berlin and, you know, it was all very exciting and very, you know, <laughs> John le Carre, you know, crossing the border at Checkpoint Charlie and all that kind of, all that kind of Cold War, yeah. you know, five rigmarole. And, but, you know, you read, I tell you, I mean, I'm sure there's many people they read about, they read about the wall coming down and we thought, wow, this is, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. There will, there will never be any war. There will be no war in our lifetime. It's it's done. It's finished. There's no and it was and and yet and then within not within years, within months, you saw the invention of new enemies. Yeah. You know, you saw you know, you saw nature doesn't like a vacuum, you know, right? Politicians and so on create new anxieties for the population uh, and new fears. And it was just so obvious how we were being manipulated. And, you know, um, it's, if you allow yourself to be manipulated by these things, well, you know, it's that, it's that thing that George Bush had a lot of trouble with, right? Fool me once, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it, it's, it's, but we get fooled all the time. And, uh, you know, it's, we, we are agents in our own fooling. Right. And if we don't realize that, then the, then the, then the only, then the only option is we are being, is we are allowing ourselves to be manipulated and we're manipulated as consumers. We buy too much stuff. Yeah. Period. Yeah. We waste capital at a rate that is astonishing, the junk that we spend money on. And, you know, here, here we are coming up to Christmas. How much junk, how much plastic junk? It all ends up in the landfill, people. Every last fragment of it. It's all junk. But, you know, people think, oh, it's so new and shiny and it flashes and it's bright red. I'm, I, you know, <laughs> I would rather give my kids this than buy them a house by, you know, not showering them with garbage for 30 years. And anyway, you can tell them a bit. <laughs> no, no, I, I, dude, you, trust me, yeah. you're, you're, uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and, and marketing, we are such victims of consumerism. Like it's actually one thing that I want to get better at because yeah. in my own life, I've collected shit. It's that's weird. just what it is. Yeah. It's weird because I've never been, I've, that's never really affected me. I just, yeah. I just look at all that stuff, you know, television ads, you know, any kind of ads. I just look at it and go, really? I'm not that stupid. And, but apparently, <laughs> well, apparently a lot of people are. Yeah. So, I've never bought a new car and I never will, you know, I just, you know, I'm just kind of, uh, yeah, I'm just not into the consumption thing. Well, and, not, 
and, and, and uh, I spoke with a Buddhist reverend. And the interesting thing about consumerism is it's an insatiable appetite. It's an insatiable appetite. Yeah. You can never yeah. fill that void. What's if, you know, talk about um, extrinsic, intrinsic. If you're always, yeah. if what you value is without you, you will always, you'll never be able to fill that void, that vacuum. Yeah. It's called a void in a vacuum for a reason. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, I always, when I'm thinking about those things, I always have to be, you know, kind of wary of, of, of turning a necessity into virtue. But as I, at the opening of the program, I remember I told you, I don't, I don't have a place, right? I don't have. <laughs> yeah. So by necessity, I cannot buy a lot of stuff because anything I buy has to go into my storage unit. My storage unit is full. <laughs> so <laughs> I throw something up. So everything in my storage unit is kind of like quite, you know, who's that Japanese woman who has that TV show? Yes. She, Mary, uh, is it Mary? Uh, Mary Khan or something. And, yeah. and, and she kind of says to you, you know, like hold the thing in your hand. And, <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. These hoarders who are trying to clear out their garage and they go, hold it in your hand. And like, does it really bring a happy memory? Is it something that you can you say goodbye to it? <laughs> you know, yeah. like I get that because I've had to do that my whole life. So everything I own could fit in a Ford Explorer SUV. Wow. With, and with a, with a bike rack. That I is insane. The bike rack, but. Everything I own could fit in a, a large SUV. That is and, insane in the best possible way, though. Like, I have so much respect for that. Well, again, you know, who, you know, <laughs> just wait until I win that, uh, you know, that, 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 that house I've got a lottery ticket for. It. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. it. I throw thir the 30 years life. of traveling was all, yeah. 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 The wait jig is up. Wait. Yeah, that's right. Just give me a four car garage, I mean, you know, and I'm I'll probably all those, all those, you know, politics will probably go right out the window. But right, um, yeah, no, I, don't, I think I think it's all pretty set in me now. I don't think I would change actually, but but yeah, I, our our relation to stuff is a big problem, and we should all think about it. Well, there's this video I saw, and I wish I had the title. Um, but it's about 30 seconds long and it's this white room and there's like stuff littered all over it. Yeah. And uh, it's incredibly powerful because it's like a deep inhale. You hear a yeah. guy taking a breath in and then like a scream or something. And it's conveying that we're missing the point of existence. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, people are always complaining about Trump lying and about people believing all these lies. Right. People, we are all believing lies when we've been believing them our whole lives. What, yeah. what, what, what lies have we believing, been believing? The, the lies of marketing. The people who right. are advertisers who convince, who convince us that uh, if you own this thing, you'll be happy. If you own this thing, you'll be happy. If you own this thing, it will increase your status. And, it, and that is not true. The opposite is true. If you're trying to find, if you're trying to buy the happiness by buying a bunch of objects, this is a fool's errand. I mean, 
you will not find it. You may find comfort, right. but comfort is different from happiness. I, I will agree that money can buy comfort. And to a certain extent, it can buy some healthfulness as well. Obviously, if you can afford like good healthcare, or, you know, things, there are yes. things like that. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, it, it's not going to make you happy. It, it's, you have to have lots of other things too. You have to, and I, I, uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. I'll, I'll tell you a little story. Do we have time? Yeah. I'm taking a little time here. Oh, that, yeah, that's okay. We're, we're at an hour and 25 here. So, yeah. Okay. So we got six more hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Uh, you know, uh, when I was, after I got on my PhD and I started getting some work in academia and so on, um, but there came a point where it didn't look like I was going to get like a permanent tenured position at a university. And one of the, if I looked at my possessions, the, in terms of bulk, 75% of the bulk of my possessions was books. Right. And these books were, I mean, really part of my professional identity. I mean, when you're an academic, the, the books you buy, they're, you, they're, they're, you're pretty attached to them. Yeah. And they're, they're it says un- something about what you read. Yeah, you know, you're, you've invested, you know, a lot of your identity is invested in those books and what you learn from them. And, but finally, I had to say to myself, I say, you know, I'm paying $125 a month to store these books. And, you know, I don't know if I can afford that. And all these books are in the library. Right. And I've already read them. Like, why do I need them? Yeah. And let, but let me tell you, it was, I cried. <laughs> you know, yeah. But, but you emotional for me to get rid of those books because I, as I say, my yeah. identity was kind of bound up in them in a really profound way. But, uh, wow. but I will also tell you something else. It was really hard to do. It was hard for me to do emotionally. But when I, after I did it, I was liberated. I was also right. felt liberated. I felt lighter. I felt freer. I knew that if I ever wanted any of those books, I, I could just get them at the library. And, and so I, I really did myself a favor by, by clearing that stuff out. And, um, and, and, you know, that, that, that's, you know, our, our relationship to our stuff is something we should think about. Yes. And, but people are scared. People are scared to, people get emotionally scared to do those things. I mean, you know, maybe in some respects my hand was forced, but I'm here to tell you that it won't kill you. <laughs> to get. Well, but it might kill you if, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's, what kills your spirit? I mean, I, I, you know, all this consumerism, that can kill your spirit. Yeah, 100%. If we're, all, if we're, if we're depressed or struggling today, it, it's also a question of, of our value system. You know, this is another great thing to talk about is this word values. What are values? What do they mean? How do they sustain us? Right? And at some point you gotta, you know, people become a little kind of lazy philosophically. Like, you know, these are questions that every person should actually ask themselves and in a serious way. And, and uh, yeah, you know, it's um it's just one of those things 
Well, what's interesting is, yeah, what what are our values? You know, because there's philosophical values. Like if somebody asks you, you know, what yeah. do you believe in? Oh, you know, this. But what do you act in what you believe in? The thing is this, is that, is that, is that the world is very happy to supply you with soundbite values. Family, right? Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. Oh, I yeah, love my kids. Yeah, but you never see your kids. You work 70 yeah. hours a week. Yeah. You know, what are you no, saying I mean, that you love your kids? You're not even in their life, man. You know? Well, yeah. I mean, in some ways, uh, taking on a value as a, as a kind of moral imperative for, for you can, can actually be a smokescreen for the actual hundred percent. So, I, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's one of these things that, that, I mean, being, being human is, <laughs> it's kind of a serious business. We have <laughs> this, this, this brain of ours gives us a certain kind of responsibility. And, uh, you know, like if you're not using it, you know, like, what are you, what are you doing here? Why are you hanging on? I mean, right. Uh, it's, you know, and I guess it's all bound up in this. So like, what are we now? Are we, are we now kind of, um, uh, homo digitus, right? Where we're the digital humans, the technology, you know, homo technologicus, uh, we're no longer homo sapiens. And I think that this is, uh, I mean, you know, all the sci-fi movies have already dealt with that, right? right. You know, <laughs> artificial intelligence is how are we going to be displaced by technology? And where does it leave us? You know, where does it leave us? Well, and you very much kind of touched about this, touched on this already, you know, this idea of uh, uh, Yuval Hari, he wrote this book, Homo Deuce. And he talks about, you know, what's the next stage in evolution, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, what is, evolution is this constant ongoing process, but in the last 15 years, and not to sound like a, you know, a Luddite, but things have changed in unprecedented ways in terms of technology, right? And how we consume things. And like you say, it sounds very much like to get into serenity, you have to sort of relinquish, right? All your stuff. Yeah. But it seems now like more than ever in the West and in my own life, I'm having to combat that idea of hoarding, you know, just taking on stuff and living through living vicariously, right? Like if you've ever been on Instagram, yeah, you've ever heard of that? People are living yeah, vicariously yeah, yeah. through that. Those aren't real people on there. Yeah, I don't do that. So I don't do Instagram. I don't do Twitter. Don't start. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I do a little bit of Facebook, but not that much. Um, I, I really do keep myself off it. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't like communicating that way. Um, maybe I've probably did a little bit more of it in COVID times because I really, but I, I like face to face. I like to sit down with somebody and have a cup of coffee. Yeah, me too. And and I like having sustained conversations, right? Like it's not every day that you have people sitting down, listen, you know what I mean? Listening to these long form conversations, you know, the Beatles mastered two minutes and 33 seconds, right? Or whatever it was that their songs were. 
we're yeah. losing focus, I think. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I get a sort of vague impression that that you know the art of conversation is really a lost art in some ways. Mm. And you know, I think we talked about this last week yeah. about this kind of loss of civility. I mean, I think sometimes people are uh, don't know what what are the topics we can talk about, and. You know, the reason why I'm kind of on my toes about this thing is, you know, when you work in tourism, when I'm working in tourism, I usually work in groups from between 15 and 25 people. And, you know, I, it's not just that I'm there giving lectures or going to the museums or archaeological sites with them. I'm, I'm, you know, I have to have breakfast with them, lunch with them, dinner with them. And, you know, they kind of look to me to guide the conversation. And of course, the last thing you want to do is talk politics. <laughs> but it's kind yeah. of like everything there, like, is there something else to talk about? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Donald Trump, and I think, well, yes, there is. Yeah. You know, uh, and there's, in fact, there's a there's a universe of topics to talk about. Politics is the most boring and use, and useless thing to talk about. You know, there's there's lots of things, and I, but I think that people feel a little bit paralyzed. They don't know what it is they should talk about when they're having a conversation. And, and I think that that that, that, that this is. This is, uh, but once once people get going, you know, then they realize, yeah, this is you, you can talk about this. You can, you know. So. I think that people are so careful in what they're saying because they don't want to hurt people's feelings. And they don't want to get mad. Yeah, and they don't want anybody to get mad at them. They don't want to get mad themselves. And of course, politics with the divisiveness that you have now doesn't allow that. And so this is this loss of civility. Um, this kind of loss of a center, you, you know, right. um, there doesn't seem to be some middle place in which we can disagree, but, you know, it, it just seems like it, it's, it, people are occupying these poles that, and for which there is no reconciliation. And this is also what's so frightening, not only about, say, you know, you know, the, 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 the Trump, the first Trump-Biden presidential debate was a kind of model of the entire country. A hundred percent. The impossibility of having a, you know, a discussion, an intelligent discussion about the issues. And, and if we don't get that back in our own lives, then how can we expect, you know, those shyster politicians to do it? <laughs> You know, as I say about democracy, is you know you get the democracy you deserve, and and um, so it's you know I I I I it's it's nice for me because I do get those opportunities, or at least normally I get those opportunities, and it's one of the things that that I it's not it's not just my income that I miss, <laughs> and I do miss the income because my income went you know from a you know pretty yeah, middle, you know, middle class income to zero. Right. With, you know, and, and so this is, that's hard. But another thing I miss is uh, that kind of conviviality and, and being able to meet these new people who take these trips. They're all interested in learning. They're all interested in taking a break from the news cycle and talking about different things. And it works, it works nicely. It's, it's, it's great. I do enjoy working on those trips. And um, they can be exhausting sometimes. I mean, because sometimes I do, I've done four in a row, which means I mm. work 50 days straight, you know. 
you know, it is a bit of work and kind of entertaining right. and being on all the time. It, it is exhausting, uh, yeah. but, but I do appreciate it and I, and I miss it. Uh, I miss that, that, uh, I miss that conversation. Do you, do you think that, uh, do you think that COVID would have reached the level of hysteria? Cause I mean, it, there's some hysteria associated with it. There's just no doubt. Would reach the same level of hysteria if this happened 20 years ago, before social media and things like that. Gosh, what a good question. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. 20 years. <laughs> 20 years. Well, yeah, I don't know. Hey, 20 years ago, remember? Remember, people were freaking out because Y2K. Uh, Y2K. Yeah, yeah, I remember, I forgot the name of it, but everybody's freaking out about the, all the computers kind of bursting into flames on midnight of New Year's Eve, <laughs> 1999. And it's interesting you, know. you bring that up because that was such a real belief, you know? In some people, it was like, actually, yeah. you know what? No, I'm, 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 I'm remembering it through the eyes of a 10-year-old. But anyways, <laughs> how old I was. I did. I, all I did was I thought, you know, um, I'm just going to unplug my computer. <laughs> if I unplug, if I, yeah. if I, you know, if it doesn't have any electricity, how could it possibly blow up? I mean, sure. you know, I thought, <laughs> and then, you know, the next, you know, the next day, you know, around oh, we're all here. Okay. I got to plug this thing in again. <laughs> Try to put it over, get as long a cord as you can and uh, plug the thing in and press the button and hope to God that, the thing starts up right so so but then when we when we look back at this we're like oh my god we were we were so uh easily duped kind of like you're saying about you know we're so easily manipulated and that's just think, just think of how many people bought new computers right yeah right. you got it and if honestly if you're telling me that Dell, uh, you know, all these guys didn't start this whole Y2K thing, I would, you know, I mean, I know I sound like a conspiracy theorist, right? But, right. but it, it's completely consistent within marketing strategies is, you know, supply and demand, uh, you know, how do you sell stuff? And, and that, interestingly, you know, in, you know, I grew up in an analog world. I, I grew up in an analog world. I was I was 30 when I bought my first computer. So all of my um, all of my undergraduate papers were done on a typewriter, uh, and a few of my things in my MA, my mat, But but when I was in my last year of my master's degree at UBC, I I, I did buy a computer. <laughs> oh, I hated that thing. Uh, anyway. You know, so I was not, I was not brought up in a digital world, but. Right. And, in, and so I was brought up with analog advertising. So traditional advertising. But another thing that's happened with all of this is that advertising and marketing has totally changed. Okay, sure. There's still advertising in magazines. There's still advertising at bus stops. There's still billboards. There's still television advertisements. There's still a lot of uh, the old radio advertisements. A lot of the old media advertisements um, still exist. And you know, right. people should realize that all of these media 
their primary reason for existing is to deliver advertising to you. The content, the music we hear on the radio, the TV shows we watch, those are merely to get our attention. They, they are ancillary oh. to the existence of the media. The media only exists to sell you things. Right, if, because the radio, you would hear the no song on the radio. Media would exist, yeah. And it's the same thing with the internet, really. I mean, that has been true. But what I was saying is, is that internet advertising and the use of social, the, the intersection of social media with right. advertising has really changed the way in which things can be sold. And, you know, <laughs> remember, well, I'll give you a good example. Somebody, somebody, right, starts this thing and says, Obama's going to take your guns away. <laughs> right. Well, the gun manufacturers in the U.S. and the, and the, and the ammo manufacturers had their best string of money. A hundred percent they did. They're taking our guns. They should love Obama because, you know, whipping up the fear of, you know, they're going to take, you know. It, yeah, yeah. Like, they're not taking my guns. I'm buying more. Old dead hands, you know. Yeah. I mean, and, and uh, but of course, but they hate them. Right? <laughs> they, yeah. hated, they hated them, but they had to admit that. They profited that from them. They profited immensely from And them. people, like, we are kidding ourselves if, well, obviously we're kidding ourselves if we don't believe that people don't profit from our fears. Yeah, and by the way, uh, gun sales have also uh, really peaked in the U.S. uh, in the past few weeks as it became more clear that Biden might be the winner. Yeah. But I I say that, but I I secretly fear that guns guns and ammunition are also peaking. In Canada. because Because Biden might win and Trump may not concede or that you know trump may win right. and the left, i'm not leaving you know, you know blm every the left is going to go nuts and is berserk and there's going to be riots in the streets i mean you know, we've already had it i mean it's already you know it is is all of this stuff just preliminary this is the, i guess this is the fear is that you know one you know one of the things that indicates the stability of a state is um, the transfer of power, right? The, tr- the interregnum, so that you have an unbroken chain of stability in the transfer of power. Right. You want to make it and seamless. I think this is really, you know, of course, and, and you know, this is why Al Gore conceded. Al Gore should not have conceded that election. Right. But he's a very gentlemanly old school guy. And so to ensure this stable and quick transition of power, he conceded. Right. And so it it ended up not being a kind of crisis. It ended up being something that people might regret. Because he could have challenged the the, the counting in Florida, Florida, right? Yeah, he could. Yeah. I mean, it could have Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush was the, like, come on. Are we not seeing a problem here? Like, And so, you know, I mean, you know, there's some, the, the, of course, the, you know, CNN always, CNN is just as guilty as Fox News. Oh, is yeah, because it sells. In terms of, yeah, exactly. I mean, whenever you have, whenever you are news media, so this is, I mean, I, this is no 
everybody knows this already, is that, you know, in journalism is now completely commodified. I mean, yeah. news is commodified. Um, it, there is a big difference, you know, <laughs> mentioning, you know, Lisa Laflamme. I mean, I will say that watching, you know, sort of evening news, you know, you still have those anchors who are give the evening news and it's very Walter Cronkite. This is the way it is, you know, September yeah. 85. You know, and there's not this, you know, but you've, but you've got all these people on Fox and on CNN and they're emoting all the time. They're getting angry. It's just all editorial and yeah. it's not news. And I, I mean, I'm pretty old school. I kind of like, you know, Give me Omar Sajidina. Give me, give me, give me, give me those those sort of. Yeah. Just I'm just going to tell you what's happening. Exactly. Stop putting. Well, I, I can't stand Chris Como on because uh, he's like just getting pissed off at people. It's like oh, yeah. whoa, like I can kind of read where you're going with this, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it's not unbiased, and it's like that's no. increasingly becoming okay. Well, and that well, right. that's been happening for a long time, but. Yes. As soon as, as soon as your news is, as soon as your your whole economy is based on ratings, then yeah, What's you got This was the, you know this is uh, the problem with twenty four hour news cycle is you have to you have to you have to it has to be on crack. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's no other way because yeah. because you know like five days can happen and. Nothing happens really, so you have to take very small things and blow them all out of proportion. And you know, you, every time Trump tweets, it has to be a news story, and there's all yeah. this, you know, stridency and people losing their temper and talking over one another. And you know, like it was said earlier, you think there's a, you know, you wonder. You're asking me why I, I put my head in the sand and mm. you know go off to Greece and you know contemplate yeah. ruins. Are you kidding me? I, you know, I'm the. <laughs> I think like, you're the. Yeah, yeah. Come, yeah. Along, come yeah. along with me and see how you like it. Believe me, you'll yeah. love. You know. <laughs> well, and and again, talking about our mental health, stress, and like, yeah. there's it's just it's so frustrating. Like I I don't watch it because they're good at what they do. You know what I mean? Like. They are masters. Sure. Master manipulators. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you remember, remember earlier you were talking about the difference between, between uh, travel and a vacation. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, you know, a vacation is something where you're just resting. Yes. You know, you're, you don't really want to do anything. The, the purpose is to do nothing, really, in a pleasant surrounding that is right. amenable to such leisure. And, you know, I don't think I've ever taken a vacation. Because <laughs> you didn't need it. But, yeah. But, you know, when I work on these trips with, you know, Smithsonian or Zagram or whatever, it is, it is sort of like a vacation for the clients because it's a vacation from the news cycle right. and from the media. And, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll try to pull out their cell phones and, you know, they won't get in the signal. And I'll say, you know, that's a good thing. Yes. You know, put put that thing away, man. You know, because um, I've got you know we've got some things to see, and uh, it, it's nice. It's a vacation from from the craziness. Yeah. 
Well, that's why I love to go hunting. Like I, I go out there and, yeah. you know, I'm very much, I'm at the mercy of my environment. And it can be a scary yeah. feeling. Yeah. Hell yeah. But it's a humbling feeling. And well, it's yeah. very good for your psyche. Yeah. And depending on the kind of hunting you do, I mean, it, 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 there's something pretty primal about it. I mean, very essential about it. I mean, let's face it, in nature, almost everything hunts, you know, and so you, you, you just become part of that thing. You're, um, you know, uh, uh, you, you've, got, you've got a little bit of an advantage. You know, yes, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm using a high-powered rifle, right? I would think, yeah, I, you know, I would think you should, shouldn't use anything more technologically advanced than bow and arrow. Right. With an arrow. You if you really want to get into it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> come on, yeah, <laughs> you know, even the playing field, but uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, it's it's well, you know, British Columbia is still a remarkably wild place in a way. I mean, it's there's lots, there's still there's still some of its primal, you know, it, it still kind of holds on, but. It's, it just seems inevitable that even the beauty of British Columbia, uh, you know, look at, look at how Vancouver and greater Vancouver, metro Vancouver area has grown in the yeah. past 30 years. The population increase, pollution increase, you know, all of these things. It's uh, human impact on the environment is, is huge. The, you know, we've got 8 billion people and it's, yeah. about, to, it's about to go through the roof. Well, there's just there, there's no dismissing it that there's you know there's a comedian I like his name's Bill Burr and he's saying there's just, there's too many people on the planet so if you don't want to wear your mask and get sick and die that's fine by me right yeah, yeah. but yeah it's you know where do we go from here so I guess to kind of close out what are the solutions I mean we're sort of we're in a codependent relationship with media and technology and the sort of dysfunctionality of society, right? Like we hate it, but we love it. So what is the solution to that? Well, again, you know, the Greeks, the Greeks had, the Greeks had the, had the answers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the ancient Greeks had the answers. And that is everything in moderation. You know, I mean, I know it sounds corny, but don't let anything take over take over. Um, don't be addic- addicted to anything. Um, moderate, moderate living. You know, this is sort of the Epicurean, when we talked about Lucretius and that book, The Swerve, and De Rerum Naturae. Well, this, you know, the, 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 the ideas, the philosophical ideas that are espoused in that ancient book of which a, a sort of version of it was found in Herculaneum, in the Villa Papyri. Um, you know, this was this idea of moderation and, and enjoying simple things of life, not letting any one thing kind of take over your, 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 yourself and, and enjoying, this, enjoying the simple pleasures of life. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's not simple, if it's getting too complicated, then, you know, then you're not going to be able to enjoy it. So, 
And we really have overcomplicated. This things. is not an easy thing to do in the world we now live in. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm also, I'm also, you know, my my life is again, you know, necessities and virtues and things, but you know, I never married, never had any children. You know, you just think that how how much of that I never had a nine to five job. So my life is very different than most people's because of just those things. Right. So yeah, I, you, my, my life is simple because of those things too. And it's not so much I made a choice or anything. It's just, it just happened that way. And maybe I did have a kind of, I've always, I've always enjoyed freedom, you know, and uh, the freedom to move through the world and live my own life. So because like, I mean, if it's not yours, then whose is it? Right. Right. Who owns your life? You know, who has control over what you do every day? Um, and we you know, can go ahead. No, like your boss, yeah. you know, you know I mean, the, the company you work for, your job, your, your family. I mean, if it's your family, then that's great. You love your family. You're happy with your family, but that's wonderful. But yeah. Or, or the or the things that we own, we can very much, the things that we own, we can very much be owned by. You were speaking of previously, and that's such a powerful message. Yeah. What owns you, right? So, yeah, yeah. It's that old joke about a homeowner, right? <laughs> well, did you know that mortgage? I don't own the house; that house owns me. Yeah, that's not sort of like that. Yeah, I mean, you can think you can think about that. That can be that's sort of like a throwaway line, but but. Yeah. You know, you you can take that more seriously and be more thoughtful about that, and then it becomes a little more ominous. Right. Well, well, mortgage in Latin means death grip. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how true is that? So. <clears throat> yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Allen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we could probably Thanks. talk for another six hours. Yeah. Um, maybe you got two programs out of that. Yeah. Well, but hey, it would be great to actually have you on again. So, and that's one of the wonderful things about COVID is that, you know, communication is easy. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing a lot of this. I'm doing a lot of Zoom stuff. Yeah. And, and uh, I'll be sure to pass on some information about your books. Uh, your most recent book was, was that the one on the uh, The most recent book is uh, on the Hippodrome of Constantinople. And so it's about chariot racing in the ancient world. And uh, the, yeah, so you can learn. I mean, a, a lot of people think that the most popular entertainment in the ancient Roman world was gladiator competitions, but actually the most popular sporting events and entertainment in, in the Roman and Byzantine world was chariot racing. You could have up to 80,000 people at once watching a day of chariot wow. races. And yet it's something that, People know very little about, but it's a fascinating world. So, I use a study of the uh, of the Hippodrome in Constantinople, which of course is today Istanbul, as a jumping off board to study to study that whole phenomenon. That's awesome. And then uh, the book before that was on the city of Palermo in Sicily. It's called Palermo Travels in the City of Happiness, and uh, yeah, they're available on on Amazon and um, yeah. So I have an author's page, Alan Langdale, and uh, so all my 
my most of my books are sold through through Amazon there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I I love the uh, Palermo City of Happiness. That's so you know quaint. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, the reason that this, that this that, uh, it's sort of a, a um, you know, when, when people hear about Palermo, you know, they mm -hmm. well, where's Palermo? Well, it's in Sicily. And they all go, oh, my God, you know, it's, it's all about the mafia and all this kind right. of stuff. Okay. But actually, Palermo is a fabulous, fabulous city that very, that not that many people go to. And um, it's a completely safe city to be in. And so instead, you know, and most books that are written about Palermo are written about the mafia. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to write a book that is about the fascinating history. Palermo used to be one of the most important cities in the Mediterranean. So even from very ancient times, it has um, it's had this real centrality. And it only really kind of has sort of to de deteriorate in the early 20th century. But up to the early 20th century, Palermo was one of the great cultural capitals of Europe. And uh, so I wanted to write a book that celebrated, you know, and that idea of happiness, it, it used to have a nick the, the nickname of Palermo in the Renaissance period used to be La Felice, the happy one. And so uh, that's why I wanted to get back to that idea of, of Palermo as uh, a happy city. Well, there's so, that, that big piece of cognitive dissonance, right? You hear this place is so bad. Then you go there and you're like, oh, it's kind of yeah, nice, right? It's, not bad, it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Alan Langdale. And you take thank care. And, and I hope that you can fly again real soon. Yeah, me too. Yeah, <laughs> next, next time we'll talk about Cyprus. Oh, okay. Sounds good to me. Thank okay. you once again. Once again, that was Dr. Alan Langdale, author, film director, professor. You can check out his most recent uh, books, Palermo, The City of Happiness, and his book on the Hypodrome. Um, I really enjoyed everything that he had to say, and he left me with a lot to, to, to think about. And I know that in terms of some of the political happenings in the world and and the seemingly uh, political divisiveness that's happening in the in, in the world, I can get really worked up, really anxious, really angry. And he's an important piece of advice is that we need to question this. Where is this coming from? Why are we feeling this way? And why are we being pulled in a specific direction? And Socrates said 2,500 years ago that the unexamined life is not worth living. And those words are now just as important, just as relevant as they were then, as they always have been. Are we living the examined life? There are so many distractions in our lives that we can be living an unexamined life incredibly easy perhaps easier than it's ever been. So how are you living an examined life? What are you doing to be awake and to be present and to have an open mind? And once again, my promise to you is that if you live with, with this perspective, with this way of living, right, you will feel happier 
you will feel healthier mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. If you stop just consuming what we're quote unquote supposed to consume and just start to question things and ponder to yourself, maybe the way I'm going about this isn't the way that I want to be going about this. So there it is again. How can you take control of your life and stop giving the controls of your life to others, to the things that we buy, to the things that we watch, the things that we listen to? How can you live an examined life? Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day and do take care. Bye now.